Our scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have sent Jesus um, and that by uh, the power of your spirit that you um, bring new life to people who are dead by the glorious crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray that your spirit even now would, would open our eyes uh, to see what you would have to teach us as Christ community in 2015 um, from this letter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, visiting a new church for the first time, it's a hard thing to do. I mean, even if you came with a friend, uh, it's not an easy thing to walk through those doors uh, for the first time, especially on a day uh, that's this cold. And and as a pastor, I don't often get to visit other churches, um, but last week when I was in St. Louis visiting my family, uh, my parents for Christmas, I had a chance to go and visit uh, their church with them. And uh, it was the first time I had been in a new church for a while. And, and I was reminded afresh of, of how hard it is uh, to walk into a place that's unfamiliar, where you, where you don't know where anything is, and you're not sure where to check in your kids. And, and some of you are experiencing that this morning. Um, this is your very first time at Christ Community. Uh, and maybe for some of you, this is your first time uh, at church, or at least at church in a very long time. And as you walked in this morning, you looked around at all these people who are coming in who look like they have their lives all together, who are nicely dressed and seem like they know what's going on. And maybe you thought to yourself, I just don't know if I could fit in here. Uh, I just don't know if this is a place where I could feel at home. Actually, someone said to me just last week as we were uh, after the service, they're like, I still feel like I might burst into flames every time I walk into a church. I'm just not sure if it's the place for me. (laughs) And honestly, you don't have to be new uh, to feel that way. Um, All the smiling faces, the happy families, nicely dressed people, their kids who seem like they obey perfectly all the time. Um, I mean, we all know the drill, right? 
I mean, even your kids know it, if you have kids, right? You're driving to church, you get to the parking lot, the argument stops in the car, everyone puts on the smile, and and the secrets of, of last night or of last week or last year remain nicely hidden away. And, and I feel like for, for myself and, and for, for many of us, kind of that's the default resolution, right? Uh, maintain the image. Um, recently, I was struck uh, by how the Melanie Martinez song, Dial House, captures um, the lives that so many of us live. Um, the song's kind of haunting, and the chorus goes this way. It says, places, places, get in your places. Throw on your dress and put on your doll faces. Everyone thinks that we're perfect, Please don't let them look in the curtains. Please don't let them look in the curtains. We live dollhouse lives so often, don't we? I love the, the Onion article with the, the, the headline of six-day visit to rural African village completely changes women's Facebook profile picture. And we laugh, right? But it's also a little painful. As so often with the onion, where we laugh on the outside, but we cry a little on the inside because we know how true it is. It's all about maintaining the image, right? Earlier this week, my wife, Rachel, shared with a blog post that she had seen by a photographer. It was called, I Can't Make You Beautiful. Maybe you saw this floating around Facebook this week. And the author of the post, she writes, I hear it all the time from brides and grooms, from moms and dads, from Random guests who wander up to me at weddings on the off chance, I suppose, that they'll wind up in a photograph. Make me look younger, they say. Make me look beautiful. And she reflects in the article about, well, what is beauty? And she continues, a few years ago, I photographed a family I'd never met before. They arrived perfectly pressed and cleverly coordinated. The mom, the dad, the little girl about six years old. I love this line. They were everything you'd expect to find in a frame you'd buy at Target, all white teeth and unnecessary scarves. But an odd tension wafted off of them from the moment I shook their hands. I couldn't quite place it, she writes, until the end of our session when the dad picked up his daughter for a portrait. She threw her arms around his neck and kissed his cheek and I snapped a few photos. As I lowered my camera, the little girl reached for him again, moving in to kiss his face, spontaneous and sweet. No, he intoned sharply, setting her firmly away from him. That's only for the pictures. The mom rolled her eyes, resettled her handbag over her well-toned arm. The little girl's shoulders sagged and her eyes drooped to the ground. And they're all American beauty, she writes, crumbled like a rotting tree. They were thin and wrinkle-free. Their hair was shiny, their skin was clear, and they were so terribly ugly. You know, we define ourselves by the image we project. But the truth is, we are so often a mess. And that was exactly the problem that was facing the Corinthian church. They looked good on the outside. They looked really good, in fact. But on the inside, they were crumbling like a rotten tree. And at one level, it might seem like we have little in common with, with a church that was halfway around the world 2,000 years ago in a completely different culture. But as we study this book together, I think we're going to find that we have more in common than we might think. The Corinthians thought they had it together. They, they overemphasized what they already enjoyed, the gifts they already had. And they did have so much going for them. So much. But they were a mess. They were a beautiful mess, but they were absolutely a mess. And and that's what Paul is telling them, what what he's telling us through this letter. That we are a beautiful mess, but we won't always be. 
We are a beautiful mess, but we won't always be. And over the next several months, as we're going to be looking at this letter, at this ancient church that is in so many ways just like us, beautiful and yet really messy, we're going to see this theme unfold again and again and again. God has done so much for them, and they are truly beautiful, and yet they have a long way to go. And so this morning, as we look at these first few verses that that Carolyn read for us, um, we're going to see three primary things. First, we're going to see that Paul says, we are the church. You are the church. And then he's going to say, and because you're the church, you're beautiful. And then he's also going to say at the end, though, but you're a really big mess. So we're going to say that you are the church, you're beautiful, and you're also a mess. And the Corinthian church is a mess, but that's not where Paul starts. He actually begins really positively. He tells them, look, you are the church. If you notice verse 2, he writes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, again, another idea of being set apart, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. You see, Paul, the author of this letter, was an early church leader, and he had been a leading Jewish scholar in his time. And he had actually sought to destroy the church. He was active in seeking to destroy the church until he encountered Jesus and his life was completely transformed. And he became one of the most influential leaders in the world of the church who brought the good news about Jesus all over the Roman world, including to the city of Corinth. And Corinth was, was founded by the Greeks. It was located on the little isthmus there. And it was a, a land bridge, actually a really important place of connecting east and west culturally. But the Romans conquered the Greeks, um, and when they did, in 146 BC, the city was actually completely destroyed. All of its citizens were were sold into slavery uh, or killed. But a little over 100 years later, Emperor Julius Caesar rebuilt the city. And it was a Roman colony, and it served as an important political seat. It was populated with people from all over the empire. So the Romans brought people from all around the world and placed them in this new colony making it kind of an eclectic and cosmopolitan city, not unlike Kansas City today. It included Jews, retired Roman soldiers, former slaves, as well as Greeks. And the cultural and religious climate was was heavily influenced by the the Greek culture, but also cultures from Asia and Egypt. It It was very pluralistic. Again, like Kansas City, lots of different religions, perspectives, backgrounds gathered into one city. And also like in the United States, in Kansas City, there wasn't this long history of sort of landed aristocracy. It was a, it was a new city. It had been rebuilt. And so there was no, no long-standing landholders, but it was an aristocracy of wealth, a meritocracy. And scholars point out that, that Corinth was a city where you could make a fortune, rise in power and wealth and honor. And, and because it was a young, power-hungry trade city, it attracted social climbers and the socially ambitious, people who were hungry to climb the ladder. And also, the Corinthians, they, they loved rhetoric. They loved great speakers. I mean, these are people who would have thought the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, they would have loved stuff like, they would have thought TED Talks were like the best thing. And uh, when, when Paul arrived in the city around AD 49, bringing the news about a Galilean Jew named Jesus who had died and rose again, um, the city looked a little bit like this. This is some of the work that they've done to excavate uh, the old city of Corinth there. And Paul stayed there for about a year and a half, teaching and establishing the local church in the city. 
And then he left Corinth and he went on to Ephesus and he began to establish a local congregation there. Paul planted about 20 churches uh, during his, his time. And while he is there in Ephesus, the Corinthian Christians wrote him a letter. We don't have that letter. They wrote him a letter with a whole host of problems. And, and, and meanwhile, while Paul has that letter, he also hears these rumors from Chloe's people that, that all is not well. And it's probably from Ephesus that then Paul writes the letter that we have, the letter of 1 Corinthians, around AD 55. And, and many of you know at Christ Community, we are also passionate about planting churches and multiplying congregations. And today is actually the first Sunday um, of our Shawnee campus. Um, we sent out about 140 people, mostly from our Olathe campus. And, and it's hard to send people out, but it's worth it for what we believe God will do in Shawnee. It's the same work that he did in Corinth. It's the same work that he did here in Brookside. The work that he's been doing for 2,000 years, establishing congregations and bringing people to Christ. And, and as you notice, Paul addresses the letters, his letter to those in Corinth, and he says, he writes that, that they are called to follow Jesus together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't want to miss that, because there's two th key things we want to take away from that. First, it means that neither they nor we are the center of the Christian world. In fact, the Christian world has no geographical center, I mean, Christianity began in the ancient Near East in, in Jerusalem and, and spread from there. But it's a global church. Millions upon millions of other Christians are gathered today around the globe this morning or earlier last night or later on today worshiping Jesus. The church is God's thing. He's called us together. He's brought it together. Second, the, that, that fact then means that we're called together that means that there's no room for sort of Lone Ranger Christianity. We were designed to live this life together. And that's why we place such an emphasis on being in a community group, because it's a place where you can truly know one another and be known and serve and be served. Paul says to them, you together, you along with all the other Christians in Corinth around the world, you are the church. And, and as the local church, they have so much going for them. And, and Paul is clear about this in verses 4 through 9. Uh, he thanks God for them. Earlier, he, he says that they were called to be saints. It means that they were set apart, that they belong to God. And, and all Christians are, are saints in that sense. And as saints, they are called and chosen by the God of the universe, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have so much going for them. God has done so much for them. He's given them so much. And actually, if you notice in these verses, Paul doesn't praise them for anything. He only thanks God for what God has done for them. Now, in, in other letters that Paul will write to other churches, he actually will praise the churches for their love or their work. But, but here, Paul doesn't praise anything they've done. He just gives thanks to God for what he's done, which is indicative of, of what's coming in the letter because of God's grace, they were enriched in speech and all knowledge. Because of God's grace, they were, they were not lacking in any spiritual gift while they awaited Christ's return. Now, now even here as Paul is praising and thanking God for what God has done, we need to hear just an ever so slight sort of tinge of, of irony or even maybe a little bit of sarcasm in Paul. 
Because while it is true that they were gifted in speech and knowledge, we're going to find out that they were also obsessed with rhetorical flair and they weren't really as knowledgeable as they thought. And yes, they were incredibly gifted, but they had no maturity. And as a result, the gifts were causing all kinds of problems. That's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. Don't ever confuse giftedness for maturity. Don't ever confuse giftedness for maturity. And then there's this whole thing about them waiting for Jesus to return. Maybe that's the most sort of ironic thing that Paul puts there. Because if you know the background of 1 Corinthians, what you discover is that they actually, many of them, had already thought that Jesus had returned in some way. They weren't waiting at all. They were convinced that Jesus had finished his masterpiece in them and that they could just sit back and coast. Again, he tells them how gifted they are, but he doesn't mention their love or their work, which he does in letters to other churches. Now, it is true. Paul says it in verse 9. God is faithful. We sang about God's faithfulness. There is hope for this church. He will complete his work, but there's still a lot of work to be done. So he says to them, yes, you are the church. Yes, you have so much going for you. But beginning in verse 10, Paul makes it really clear, you are a mess. You are a big mess. Again, the Corinthians, they had written to Paul with questions and concerns that indicated maybe not everything was going as well as it looked from the outside. And then Paul receives this report from Chloe's people confirming that the church was indeed by any standard a mess. And Paul is not happy, to say the least. Uh, Look what he writes in verses 10 and 11. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. Now, we're going to spend a lot more time on these divisions and quarrelings in a couple of weeks. But the basic issue here is that they were dividing themselves into camps around who was their real pastor. I mean, if you like us saying here at Brookside, well, well, my pastor is Bill. Well, no, no, actually, my pastor is John. And then someone else says, oh, no, no, I follow Pastor Tom. I mean, it's just silly stuff. Now, it turns out these divisions, though, were in the infighting, they were just the tip of the iceberg, because in time, in the time that Paul was gone, the time that he left to go to Ephesus, all kinds of problems had developed. Others had come in and taught there were problems with immorality, disunity, immaturity, lack of love. There were profound theological errors that were wreaking havoc in the church. And, and throughout the 16 chapters of this letter, we're going to see that they, they were celebrating incest. Some of them were having sex with prostitutes, while others didn't think that married couples should even be having sex. Um, There'll even be a a section in here, we'll have a Sunday where we talk about homosexuality. That'll be fun. Um, They were taking uh, each other to to courts with lawsuits. They were confused about the still rampant idol worship in their civic life. They were practicing the spiritual gifts in self-serving ways. The the Lord's Supper, communion, in that kind of context, the rich were getting drunk off the communion wine. And they weren't leaving anything for the poor people. And some of them were even denying that the resurrection had happened. But listen, the the biggest problem of the church at Corinth isn't their problems. Churches will always have problems. 
So, so the church having problems isn't a problem. We have problems at Christ's community. We are far from a perfect church. Sorry, if this is your first time and you were hoping to find the perfect church, we're not it. We have problems. The problem is that they weren't taking those problems seriously. They weren't taking those problems seriously. They didn't even see the problems. They, they were proud of who they were. They were actually boasting about these things. They thought they had arrived. But God loves them too much to let them wallow. And so, so Paul even says in, in chapter 4, he says, I write these things to you to make you ashamed, not to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So, so with tears and outrage, Paul says, wake up, Corinthian church. You are a mess. Look at the problems you have. You've got to deal with these. So the church is beautiful, but it's also a mess. That's, that's true of, of just about any church. It was true of the Corinthians church. It's true of, of our church. And now you may be thinking, but, but our church isn't as messed up as the Corinthian. I mean, we're, we look pretty good compared to the Corinthian church. I mean, I know we're a mess, but, but not that messy, are we? I mean, is there stuff going on, Bill, that I don't know about? I mean, yes and no. I mean, sure, we aren't dealing with the exact same things that they were. But I think we'll be continually surprised just how relevant this 2,000-year-old document is to us. And so as we would despair to spend a little bit of time listening in on what Paul wrote by God's Spirit to this church and what his Spirit is saying to us, to our church through this letter, I want to suggest sort of three action steps for us not just for this next week, but really for the entire time we're in this letter. And, and hey, and since it's January, we can even call them resolutions if you want. And so the, the, the first of these resolutions is, I want us to make, it, make it an effort to stop taking credit for the good in our lives. To stop taking credit for the good in our lives. Remember all the good stuff that the, that the Corinthian church had. It was all a gift of God. It was a gift of his grace. Everything that, that we have in our life is a gift. We can no more boast in our achievements or, or what we've accomplished than, than we can boast in, in, in the color of our hair and, and how tall we are. I mean, when it comes to, to how the, the color of our hair, I mean, none of us goes around saying, well, you know, I, I really wanted red hair, so I worked really hard in the womb, and, uh, and you know, I, I, just, I, I just cranked it out, and, and here I, I got it. I achieved it. And we all see how ridiculous that is, Right? I mean, everybody knows your hair color, your height, all that. It's, it's part of your genetic makeup. It's a gift from your parents. I mean, maybe it wasn't a gift you wanted, um, but it's a gift from your parents. But somehow when it comes to our intelligence, our self-discipline, our success in school or work, we, we start telling about thinking we've earned it. That we, we've worked hard. We've accomplished it. And, and I don't want to for a second discount hard work because it's vital and God calls us to, to work hard. But, but even our ability to work hard, to have discipline, that's a gift from God. And when I look at my own life, sure, there's been seasons where I've worked hard, but, but I had the gift of, of being born into the wealthiest country on the planet at a time with unprecedented opportunity, into a family with, with healthy parents and a healthy marriage. She made sure I got a good education and helped me pay for college. It's, it's a gift. 
But you might say, well, well, Bill, you were a good steward of those gifts. God blessed you because you worked hard and you didn't squander those opportunities. I wish it was true I didn't squander all the opportunities. I mean, there's certainly been seasons where I haven't made the most of what God has given me. But even those times when I've used the gifts wisely, that is a gift from God. And you see, this is the fundamental difference between religious people and gospel people. You see, religious people take credit for what is good in their lives because they've earned it. That's what religion is. But but gospel people, Jesus people, we know we have nothing but grace. And we don't just repent of of the bad things we do, we repent of even the good things we do with lousy motives. You see, everything is grace. So instead of entitlement, gratitude. So so stop taking credit for the good in your life. And so just give thanks for it. And second, daily admits how far you still have to go. Daily admit how far you still have to go. Because if you think you've arrived, you haven't even begun the journey. Paul will tell us in in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful you don't fall. If you think you've arrived, if you think you're standing firm, be careful because that's the moment when you're about to fall. And this was a big problem in the Corinthian church. They thought they had arrived. They thought they had finished. They thought, man, like they, like I said, they, some thought Jesus had returned in some kind of spiritual way. They thought, man, we're done. We're, we're coasting. But there is a great danger in celebrating too early. I, I was reminded of this um, actually this week watching this video. I want to play for you. This is just a short video clip, but just, it shows the danger of, of celebrating Martino. too early. And I mean, if you, if you Google don't celebrate too early, I mean, you can find hundreds of clips like this from every sport imaginable. And why is that? Because we have a propensity to celebrate too early, to want to see the finish before, before it's done. We're prone to that sort of thing. And that's why we need to daily admit how far we have to go. Again, this is a fundamental difference between the gospel and religion. I I love how Tim Keller explains this. He says, in religion, our only hope is to live a life good enough to require God to bless us. And so therefore, every instance of sin and repentance is traumatic, unnatural, and horribly threatening. If you're a religious-based person who says, I've got to earn my way, and that if I do enough good things that, that God will somehow bless me. Every time that you sin and have to repent, it's, it's terrible because it means the very fundamental thing that you're trusting to rescue you is being undermined. And so Keller says, only under great duress do religious individuals admit they have sinned because their only hope is their moral goodness. But in the gospel, the knowledge of our acceptance in Christ makes it easier to admit that we are flawed because we know we won't be cast off if we confess the true depths of our sinfulness. And then Keller continues, and I I don't want us to miss this. He says, whereas in religion we repent less and less often, the more we feel accepted and loved in the gospel, the more and more we will be repenting. People who are centered in the gospel repent more and more. And he says, this creates a radical new dynamic for personal growth. The more we see our own flaws and sins, the more precious, electifying, and amazing God's grace appears to us. You know, another sign that, that maybe we aren't yet um, realizing how far we have to go is that we end up neglecting the spiritual disciplines, prayer and Bible reading, solitude. You see, if you're not regularly engaged in those things, you're, you're not going to grow. You're not going to change. And you'll end up missing out on, on the best that God has for you. 
so if you're looking for an easy place to start, you can just go to our website and sign up for Open Here. It's our Bible reading plan. There's bookmarks in the back that have that if you want to get started in, in reading the Bible. Um, if you sign up online, they'll email you a chapter each day to read. You can, there's even a link. You can listen to it on your smartphone while you're driving to work or getting ready, kids ready. See, if you're not regularly engaged in those disciplines, there's a good chance that it's, it means that you think you've already arrived. That oh, I, don't, I don't need to do that stuff. I'm, I'm good without it. Over Christmas, I just finished reading the, the New York Times bestseller, The Power of Habit. It's a great read. It's, it's all about kind of neuroscience and how the brain forms habits and, and how to change them, the science of how habits work. and how, It's a fascinating read. I highly recommend it. And actually, the author's site studies that 45%, fully 45% of what we do is just habit. Execution of habit. So let me give you a simple next step. It's the new year. Pick up a new habit. Daily admit how far you have to go how dependent you are, how desperate for grace you are. Every day this year, pray these words from, I love these, from Psalm 19, 94. I am yours, Lord, save me. I am yours, Lord, save me. I have so far to go. I am yours, Lord, save me. And finally, commit this year to running toward rebuke. To running toward rebuke. Now, this isn't something that's natural for any of us. I mean, a, a rebuke means a sharp criticism, and none of us enjoys criticism even when it isn't sharp. Um, and, and, you know, if you read leadership literature, you're familiar with all the maxims, right? Like, you know, facts are your friends. Walk toward the barking dog. Face the brutal facts. But it's hard to apply those, isn't it? I mean, nobody enjoys being told where they're failing. But it's the only way to grow we can't change what we don't know is broken. So let me challenge you this year to listen for truth in every criticism you receive. Because sure, some people have no idea what they're talking about, right? Maybe your boss, maybe you think your spouse has no idea what they're talking about. They probably do more than you want to admit. Maybe it's your coach doesn't understand what you were trying to do with that move or that play. But this year, make a conscious choice to learn even from criticism that, that may be completely misplaced. Come to God's word with a posture of, of being willing to be corrected and challenged and changed. And pray that God would love you enough to place people and circumstances in your life that would wake you up to your need for change. Because that's what Paul is trying to do. He writes this difficult letter, not because he doesn't care about this church. He, he writes it because of how very much he cares, how much he loves these people. He loves these men and women and therefore he's willing to say uncomfortable things, things that need to be said even though they hurt. So this year, let's, let's stop taking credit for the good things in our lives. Let's daily admit how far we still have to go. Let's run toward rebuke even when it hurts. I love how Paul summarizes all of this in verse 17. Let me read it to you in the message. Paul or uh, John mentioned that earlier, the message translation. I, I do love how Eugene Peterson handles this verse. He says, God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric on my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. You see, Paul doesn't want us to miss the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross. I mean, did you notice that Jesus is mentioned 10 times in the first nine verses of this letter? And 24 times if you count each word. 
It's because we can't do this on our own. Even though it hurts, even though we continue to blow it, there is so much hope in this letter. We don't always, we won't always live such dollhouse lives. We don't have to waste our lives striving to maintain the perfect profile. For Jesus has come, and that's, for everything, that's, that's Paul's all. That's everything for him. Jesus died for our messes, and he rose again to make something beautiful out of us. A masterpiece for his glory. Out of all who come to him in faith. And praise be to God, he isn't finished with us yet. We are a beautiful mess, but we won't always be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for the truth of this letter.